0: Welcome to the next episode of Theme Warriors, or the latest episode, however you want to put it better than me. Uh, I'm Mike, joining me as always, it's Mr. Venom. How are you doing, Venom?
1: Greetings and salutations, physical media collectors. I'm doing pretty good, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing well.
0: Uh, probably gonna keep doing well through maybe half this episode till we get to a couple of the movies. Maybe I won't be feeling as well then, but, uh... <laughs>
1: We'll see.
2: Uh, Joining us, as always, as well, it's Doug Tilly. How are you doing, Doug? Doing great, Mike. So glad to be here talking about a wide variety of strange movies. We'll talk about the theme in just a second. But, uh, yeah, I'm really, really curious to hear people's reactions on every single one of these movies. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
0: It's definitely a wide (laughs) scope that we picked. Uh, One of those themes where it... uh, got a little interesting and i'm not not really not surprised that we ended up going wide scope but you never know welcome also to the show iris how are you doing iris hello
3: hello you guys how's it going
0: it's going well right out right uh, (laughs) out yeah all right well today we are talking about four movies uh and doug what is our theme of this episode
2: Well, a little tricky. Uh, Originally, the theme was films that had never been released on DVD or Blu-ray because that's a little bit up to debate in certain circumstances. The the detailed theme of this episode is films that have never been released on DVD or Blu-ray in North America.
0: Correct. Yeah, we definitely had to play with the theme a little bit uh, from when we first conceived it, just because, you know, in this day and age, it's sometimes it's even harder to find stuff that had zero release of any kind mm. than you know a, a release in this country but nowhere else or you know you'll go to pull up a list of things that didn't get released and it's like oh well someone burned it and it's a bootleg and it's here and it could turn into a big debate about what you know constitutes an actual release or not so we kind of narrowed it down
2: it's also tricky it's Sorry, mm-hmm. Mike, but it's also tricky in this day and age because some of films are available streaming fairly like like they're accessible on streaming platforms, but they don't have a physical release. So that makes it puts a little extra wrinkle in things.
0: Yes, for sure. So listeners, bear with us. Uh, we we picked the best we could outside of, you know, pushing the show back every time we we had an objection <laughs> to say, hey, no. The Netherlands releases on a you know, a 30-day limited disc or something like that. So uh, we will get right into our picks. I believe we are starting with Doug's pick first. So, Doug, take it away.
2: Yeah, my pick was 1977's Looking for Mr. Goodbar, uh, one of the more, I guess, well-known films that has not had a wide uh, release post-VHS, mostly for the fact that at the time it came out, it was a big award winner. It won for, I think, multiple uh, Golden Globes for performances. And it was a huge box office success at the time. Uh, It has a lot of kind of familiar faces in it, including Diane Keaton, who uh, I believe she won the Oscar for Annie Hall, though I think she's much better here than she is in that film. Uh, And, you know, early performances by Richard Gere, William Atherton, who we'll talk about a little later as well. Just, Just a film that made a huge splash at the time it came out. And its reputation is sort of, uh gone down a little bit i would say and i think for a lot of reasons which we'll probably get into when we start discussing it it is very 1977 it's extremely uh, reflective of the kind of mores and morals of that time the culture of that time specifically 1977 new york and it has a lot of the dated elements that you sometimes see in movies of that time um, but i i don't want to give the impression that it's not without value i think it actually has a lot of value, and in some ways, it's still an incredibly impressive movie, even outside of the performances, which I think are universally very good in it. Uh, it is about this character Teresa, played by Diane Keaton, who comes from I wouldn't say a rocky background. Her her background is actually fairly, I think, standard for a lot of people at the time. But it is a home that uh, is strictly religious, uh, Catholic, and. Uh, She has a sister that is seen as this kind of freewheeling, free spirit who's gone out and lived her life. She had scoliosis as a kid. Teresa did, Diane Keaton's character, and that has left her with kind of a negative body image. And a lot of this movie is about her trying to kind of find herself uh, physically and sexually in the world. And the difficulties that she runs into at the end, uh, uh, throughout, sorry, I should say, the the thing that this movie might be most well-known for is its final 20 minutes or so. Uh, Tom Berenger enters the picture as a uh, either bisexual or gay man who is closeted in some form. Uh, and he, I mean, I, I don't know if this is much of a spoiler at this point. We're talking about 1977. But there is a vicious violent incident at the very end of the movie that is very shocking in some ways and i think a lot of the criticism is built around this it feels like one of those kind of morality after school special (laughs) movies you know what i mean where she went out looking for a good time and instead she found this violence maybe you shouldn't do that i think that's a very simplistic interpretation of this movie which even though it has some um what I would I would definitely interpret as homophobic sequences, and even the suggestion that this gay character is you know so repressed in his actions that he turns towards violence is something that you see in a lot of movies in a lot of negative ways in the late seventies, early eighties. But I do think that the, this movie is really about the difficulty in a patriarchal world of trying to find yourself sexually because the the pushback and the confusion and the um, temptations out there can be so. Uh, monstrous that it can actually start to strip away your humanity a little bit. But I mean, I think that this is a movie that is open up to a lot of interpretations. If you go on something like Letterboxd, you see some people think it's strongly feminist. Other people think it's anti-sex. I I try to to take more of an even hand on it and feel like it might be somewhere in the middle. At the very least, I'm glad I watched it. But I'm very curious about what everyone else's response was. Let's start with you, Mike. What did you think of looking for Mr. Goodbar?
0: All right. Well, this was a first time watch for me, although it, it's not a movie that, you know, was so obscure that I'd never heard of it or didn't have a general idea about what it was about going into it. But I will say, yeah, kind of eye opening very, like I said, 70s, it's it's the kind of movie 10 minutes in if someone if someone asks you to guess the decade it came out. Definitely feels like it has that 70s grit to it. Definitely lots of the themes that you brought up uh, going on in here, as well as, you know, some of the stereotypes and uh, on just different aspects of culture feel outdated through a 2021 lens, you know, at the time it was some of that thinking was probably more common but yeah i i definitely uh, i i found the story to be very interesting it's a lot to unpack on a first time watch especially if you haven't had a lot of time to digest everything going on um i i definitely found the you know her story and her kind of journey through the movie interesting trying to navigate uh you know her own kind of finding herself in a world that it didn't seem very uh, open to it. Uh, you know, it, she pretty much had a, a negative experience with uh, almost every male character in the movie. You know, I, I think like, you know, later on when you see Richard Gere show, show up in movies, you're expecting his character, like, you know, end up and come and save the day. So I, I kind of have expected, <laughs> you know, I have expected his character to come, you know, some type of full circle by the end of the movie. Oh, he'll show back up and, Realize that he loves her, and there, because they're, you're, is I guess, from most of the stuff I've seen from him later on, that's almost like what you expect when you see, you know, his character kind of not the greatest at the beginning of a movie. You, you expect an arc there, but no, really, she just kind of moves on, or her character moves on, and wow, that ending, you know, like I said, first time watch, I was pretty shocked. Like I was like, holy shit, like this. This is a, you know, and I knew the where I was in the running time. So I was like, wow, the, that's how this is going to end. So, you know, I kind of struggled with, I, you mentioned, Doug, that um, there seems to be kind of like a split consensus, no, well, not consensus, split kind of uh, take on it, whether it's, uh, you know, anti-sex or a pro-feminist uh, movie. And I kind of struggled with that at the end, too, just thinking about it like uh, trying to figure out what exactly the movie was trying to say on that front Uh, you know i think it maybe just for me for me only having seen it once maybe i take like a middle ground on it maybe it's one of those movies that like i'd probably like to like look up and read more um, about other people's interpretations maybe get a hold of like stuff from the director or writer and just see what they have to actually have to say about it because wow there it's just a lot going on Um, but I did enjoy the movie. I, you know, I, I was interested in, um, the character of Teresa and just to see what, uh, how everything turned out to her or for her. I wasn't hoping it turned out that way, but (laughs) (laughs) like, that's not the way I was expecting it to, which, I mean, I, I think maybe that how the movie ended was maybe what kind of like threw me for the loop of like, okay, now, I don't know what the movie is ultimately trying to say. I thought I had a pre- maybe a pretty good idea or a better idea leading up to that. And that whole final sequence, once Tom Berenger shows up, it's just like, oh, it's getting dark. And oh, oh okay. I, I think, well. I think
2: Mike, that a lot of your interpretation on it is going to be based on the idea of whether the, the movie, if you think that the movie is judging the main character for her actions, then you're going to interpret mm-hmm. it one way. If you feel like that the the circumstances that happen to this character and that she experiences are a result of the world in which she lives in, to a certain extent then you may interpret it another way the fact that this is her story entirely that it doesn't follow these male characters around that you <laughs> really are looking at all of these kind of trials and tribulations through her eyes even to the point where we see her fantasies i think that that is why i came down on the side of, of maybe being uh, more positive towards it but i should also mention i meant i meant to mention it at the opening that um that the reason that looking for mr goodbar doesn't have a wide release at this time is almost certainly because of the Motown soundtrack. You know that when a movie has the list of songs, the licensed songs in the opening credits, that you're probably going to have some issues later trying to get a license for that. This movie has a lot of Donna Summer's uh, disco songs. Some very yeah. famous ones on the soundtrack. So uh, it's been very difficult kind of uh, probably working through that. Uh, as of the time we're recording this, Turner Classic Movies showed this movie very recently. So, again, it's not like it's impossible to see. It's actually available a lot of different ways. But uh, in terms of a wide release, I mean, I still expect it. It' A movie that had this much profile, it is it is kind of an outlier, even with the musical rights issues. Any other things to say about the film, Mike?
0: Um, Just echoing what you just said, like unlike the other three movies that, you know, ended up as – picks like those three i i have like a uh, well i'll say at least two of them for sure i have like a better idea why they might not have gotten physical releases or at least wide physical releases this one is you know other than the soundtrack which i could see costing a fortune in licensing this movie seems like a big enough profile that it would have got more of a, they, they would have found a way but i guess not but yeah that that's uh gonna
2: sum it up for me at, at this time all right, uh, Jerry, your thoughts on looking for Mr. Goodbar. I'm actually curious if this is your first time watching it as well.
1: <clears throat> this is actually not my first time watching this. Believe it or not, my mother loves this film. Interesting. Um, I saw this. Yeah. Uh, well, my mother loves Diane Keaton, too. Well, okay. So, I right. mean, that's probably a big reason why. But, yeah, I've seen this a couple of times when I was a kid. Um, definitely didn't really <laughs> grasp the message. And even to this day, um, I'm still kind of teetering on what the actual message of this film yeah, is. But
4: absolutely. the
1: older I get, you know, the more the more I think that, you know, I, I don't I don't want to look at it as, um, you know, Diane Keaton being punished for her decisions, because right. ultimately, you know, i it, it's not her fault. It's never her fault. And I, I just um I don't have a problem with her character in this movie. I mean, she's, you know, she's an empowered, sexually free woman. There's nothing wrong with that. I understand in the 70s and the farther back you go, the worse optics you have on that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. But obviously, living in the era that we live in, I, I have very little problem with uh the way she lived her life her sister was really the bigger train wreck in my opinion i mean it seemed like that woman had abortions uh, the way some people change their socks it right. Was, really? I, I don't know how many. I mean, did she have like three in the course of the movie or was I not understanding something?
2: I was having trouble inter- interpreting, that, interpreting that as well.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you, you could it seemed t- like she went to Puerto Rico for one. Uh, she went to um, what was the other place? She mentioned another foreign country that she went to for one. Mexico, was it? It was hard also to tell how much time was passing by as this was going on as well. Right. Because
2: when she reunites with the professor, the suggestion is that a lot of time has passed by, but it's just like,
1: but it seems like maybe a year. I mean, how much has really gone through? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Putting the timeline together for this one definitely is a chore. Um, But for the most part, um, yes, I do enjoy this film. It's definitely a, you know, a character study. Um, Obviously the interpretation of the film is going to be up to the viewer. And for me, um you know she's a victim of circumstance ultimately i mean i i don't blame her at all any way for any of the negative things that happened in her life it's unfortunate obviously but she's not inviting any of it all right A, a woman being promiscuous does not invite um you know that kind of violence into her life unless it's something that she's looking for which at times it almost looks like that's what she's going for but you know um I, I don't want to I don't want to try to think I know what's going on in a woman's head, especially a fictional one. So mm-hmm. I'll leave that alone. But ultimately, yeah, her, her performance here is stellar. You said it's better than Annie Hall. Unfortunately, I've never seen Annie Hall, but I have always heard great things about it. I mean, it's a multi Oscar winner. So um, but, yeah, I, I agree with you. I absolutely adore her performance here. Um but, yeah, I, I just I can't say enough good things about this movie. This one's definitely a thinker like this left me silent for a few minutes at the end of the movie, um, especially this time around. Admittedly, I hadn't watched this in over 20 years. I, I did. Like I said, I watched it m- multiple times, at least two or three times in the early 80s um, with my mom, the big Diane Keaton fan. But, yeah, I hadn't revisited this in a while. so And, and Man, I ended up saving this movie for last of the four that we watched. And man, I wish I hadn't done that. (laughs) So not really depressed, but I guess somber would be the better way to put it. It just, you know, it left me feeling so terrible for Diane Keaton, but or for, you know, for her character. Um, But ultimately, a wonderful film. Uh, Definitely not one that I'll be able to revisit too often, but I mean, yeah, when people are ask me for gritty, powerhouse performances, this is definitely one that I'll look back on and say, yeah, check out Looking for Miss, Mr. Goodbar and check out Diane Keaton. It's, it's, it's a stellar performance. Uh, Since I'm sure there's someone yelling at their –
2: whatever device that they listen to podcasts on, I should also mention that, of course, the Looking for Mr. Goodbar was actually based on a real person. The murder at its core uh, was the inspiration for the original book, um, which actually the author of that book didn't much enjoy this movie adaptation, but um, uh, Judith Rossner, I think her name was. But uh, the – not only was this based on a real incident – But there was a TV movie that came out in 1983 called Trackdown, Finding the Good Bar Killer, which is considered like a a semi-sequel to this because it it basically goes through the real-life events that inspired the book and therefore inspired the movie as well. So Roseanne Quinn was the name of the woman murdered in 1973, a schoolteacher, just like uh, we see in the film. I guess at this point we've kind of given away the ending pretty pretty, uh, entirely. Uh but I'm guessing that people in 1977 knew, had a pretty strong idea of how this was going to end, if they had any familiarity with either the book or the case. Uh, Let's finish up with Iris. What did you think of Looking for Mr. Goodbar?
3: Oh, man, this is one of the favorites of mine, of uh, Diane Keaton. She is, like you guys were saying, stellar in this. The character that she plays is so diverse. I mean, there's such a dichotomy in her. And you know how you guys were discussing what, 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 you know, what your take on this, for me, the take is kind of like, uh, I was discussing this with the wife the other night, um, it's kind of like a snapshot of the times then, it's kind of like a social commentary for me, that here's a woman who's trying to, you know, live her own life, but yet her dad is yelling at her, why are you, you know, staying out so late? Why aren't you married? A woman's supposed to be married and have kids. You know, um, James, the guy that kind of immersed himself in the family, (laughs) 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 you know, Um, because why? Because he was trying to set himself up as her husband and he was trying to look good for the parents because that's what he wanted. He wanted that Catholic girl, you know, that was going to be part of the family. Then you have the professor, the very first one, you know, wanted her and everything and but blamed her for his infidelity. It's, you know, and, and you get that a lot, you know, especially when they're in the car and he's like, well, I don't want to talk to the woman. I fucked, you know, it was like, OK, asshole, <laughs> you know, and I think that's where she started kind of saying that she needed to be her own person. Especially when she moved out of the house, when her dad was yelling at her, and she was like, "It was like, well, if you can't stand," she's like, "Okay, bye." And and she did become her own person. She was doing so well, and then, um, you know, trying to figure out who she was, not just within society in itself, but sexually, she wanted to know who she was. Um, I was surprised they didn't have a lesbian scene in there, to in tell no you the kidding. truth. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. They, they certainly um, but, uh, w- walk the borders of it, but I guess, yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah, it, it, that is a little bit surprising, especially because it dips into, I mean, when it dips into the, the gay content in the final half hour or so, I mean, it's not exactly with the most um, restrained hand. But I mean, it, th- this is a movie that seems like it's trying to, to confront um, things that a lot of people at the time wouldn't have been uh, seeing in films.
3: Exactly, exactly. And I think... Um... When talking about confrontation I think it it was more of her like you had said Doug Train she having such bad uh a uh, body issues mm-hmm. you know seeing herself as not beautiful uh, I guess she was just trying to get out there to see okay who who's going to tell me who you know am I desirable or am I just a piece of meat and I think and that's basically what this movie's about. I think it's just a woman trying to figure out where the hell in society she stands. And that's basically it. And and I love I love this movie because just seeing her go through all of the motions going from, you know, a dad that really loves her but is being very patriarchal to, you know, a complete dickhead to an asshole who's stealing from her. Uh, You know, to a guy that's kind of weaseling himself into her family to the final guy who she was hoping that she was going to him so she could kind of like blow off the guy, you know, um, uh, Atherton's uh, character. I think his name was James,
4: Mm -hmm.
3: you know, kind of like, how about you protect me from this guy? And then what happens at the end, you know, it, it was. And it is somber because, you know, it had been a long time since I had visited this. But, you know, but it's still one of my favorites. And then I remember, oh, yeah, this is why I don't watch it this often (laughs) because the ending sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, uh, yeah, this is a great movie. And, and you know, what the just the filming of this, the cinematography in this also is very impressive for me because it gives you that grit of the time, you know, it's. It's New York City's dirty. It's icky, um, and, and it's just it. It, yeah, exactly right. It's like Times Square when it was like flashing nudes, girls, live sex, you know, all that other stuff. And it's I don't know for for a person who loves exploitation, that's the New York I love. So anyway, yes, love this one.
1: And <laughs> yeah, thanks for
3: bringing it, man. Because you know I had you not, I'd I probably had not, probably wouldn't have watched it for another two or three years or
2: something <laughs> that's how i feel about the next movie we're about to talk about so Mike, you should, uh, <laughs> let, let's see what we're going to talk about next <laughs> uh,
0: i was just going to throw on one last thing only because uh i think i forgot to mention it um because venom kind of hit on it where he's like yeah you know i i and i can actually i think everyone hit on it a little bit just um how it, nothing I think through a 2021 lens or you know just more modern time lens when we're watching her character kind of go through the movie it for all of us I don't think anything seems odd or strange or over the top about her character's journey whereas I'm you know it'd be curious to know people watching it as a brand new movie back then to see like uh the differences just to see where society has gone from then um to now but obviously you know we we don't have anyone on the show <laughs> specifically that you know saw it as a brand new movie in the theater so we we won't get that specific uh, I mean, perspective you can get, I...
2: you can get a sense from contemporary reviews of the film right the, the ones that ones mm-hmm. that happened as it came out i mean th- this was a very well re- reviewed movie at the time so uh, i imagine that there was a lot of people who were shocked like you said like or you were suggesting there Mike. but yeah it's a little hard to tell for sure when uh, <laughs> when we've got 40 plus years of very shocking content between uh, now and, <laughs> and when it first came out. Yeah, exactly.
0: All right. Well, we will move right along to our next movie, and I believe that's Venom. So what did you pick, Venom?
1: All right. Well, I picked a movie that I've was i I've been a huge fan of my whole life. Well, huge might be a stretch. Big fan of this fun. Um, this film used to play a lot on HBO, like in the late 80s, early 90s, so I was very familiar with it. But then, as time went on, it seemed like the overall opinions of the film turned very negative um, to the point where, you know, some people seem to love it but don't really know why they love it. And then other people hate it um, and don't really give you the most valid reasons to hate it. But you know, to each his own. Uh, The film I'm talking about, of course, is 1983's The Keep, written and directed by Michael Mann. Yes, the Michael Mann. (laughs) Uh, Before, he was Michael Mann, you could say, because um, this movie does kind of have the stink of Mann on it, but not quite the way, you know, his 90s and beyond movies do. So, you can kind of tell that the DNA is there, but uh, he definitely becomes who he becomes a little bit later on. But... um, star-studded cast here you know you've got um scott glenn who played jack crawford in uh, silence of the lambs you've got uh Jurgen prochnow who uh most people would know as sutter kane from the in the mouth of madness <laughs> film uh gabriel byrne with one of the worst haircuts i've ever seen uh, in this <laughs> <film>. <laughs> his sideburns or should i say lack thereof make zero <laughs> sense for the 1940s so i'll leave it at that um But I mean, you've got Sir Ian McKellen. Yes, Sir Ian McKellen. He was knighted in 1991, um, playing very much like Max von Sydow in The Exorcist in the sense that he's only a man in his 40s, but he's playing someone uh, much older, um, someone in his 70s or 80s. Uh, unlike Max von Sydow, we actually get, uh, we do end up getting a younger version as well, slightly younger, um, maybe let's say a more cleaned up version of Ian McKellen a little bit later or towards the middle of the film. But, um, uh, I guess I, we should talk about the film, uh, the actual story before we move on. Basically, uh, the keep is a story that takes place at the tail end of world war two. Um, I believe it takes place in Russia, correct? Are they in Russia? I forget.
3: It's Romania.
1: Yeah. It's we're... Romania. That's right. The Carpathian Mountains. They talk about the right. Carpathians. That's right. <laughs> ah, so they are in Romania. So basically, there is this mysterious keep that has been in this small town in Romania for hundreds of years. Um, the Nazis roll in the town, obviously, after you know doing their fun little SS thing in the late 30s, early 40s. And they decide to take over the keep and, um, try to see if there are any riches to behold. Um, the keep is lined with 108 nickel crosses, crucifixes, basically all made of nickel. But of course, some of the soldiers think that they're made of silver. So long story short, you know, a couple of soldiers try to get rich quick and hilarity ensues after that. (laughs) Um... Man, this is a movie that I always liked as a kid, but never... Like, I only liked it more because of the creature. You know, I I really like Radu... What was his name? Radu uh, Molasar. Radu Molasar, who, by the way, the actor who plays uh, the creature in this movie, who's named Michael Carter, also plays Bib Fortuna in the Star Wars movies. So, <laughs> we, got, we got some sci-fi cred in here. <laughs> um But, yeah, I mean, I always like this because of the creature and because of some of the kills. Because some of the kills are a little silly, but, like, the very first one was brutal. Even though we don't really see the actual kill, the end result is pretty brutal. Basically, a Nazi has the top third of his body just torn off of him. Um, And then, you know, we get various other... Uh, types of kills um you know nothing too graphic i mean we get a couple of exploding heads but they're bloodless exploding heads so you know take from that what you will Um, this uh the movie is scored by tangerine dream but i feel like tangerine dream is completely wasted in this film there's very little score to speak of i mean there are some intense scenes in here where there is no music playing and, you know, I'm just so confused. It's like, you've got Tangerine Dream. Why is there a silent moment at all in this movie? You know, you, you, you've got a great, I mean, considering what they did on Legend, I mean, and granted Legend was years after this. I understand that. But, man, it, it just seems like um, Michael Mann just, did, he wanted we're, to make a Oh, sorry. I was going to say we're a few years
2: removed from Sorcerer, right? And that's the what I
1: think of when right. I think of, yeah. Yes, you are correct. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is a movie that I've always liked because of, you know, the, the quote unquote horror elements, but on um, this watch most recently, and admittedly because of the lack of a physical release, I haven't watched this in, uh, once again, just like with Mr. Uh, Goodbar, I haven't watched this in over 20 years, but, um, I was actually really getting into the story this time. I genuinely love the kind of, uh, um, let's say the, uh, uh, the struggle that Ian McKellen had with, uh, you know, the decision on releasing this creature who obviously seems to be almost like a golem in the sense that uh, he wants to protect the Jewish people because they are his people. Um, but then obviously if he releases this thing, you know, I mean, this is evil incarnate. He's not going to stop with Germans. You know, we all know how this story goes. Um and for anyone who hasn't seen The Creature in the Keep uh, but does watch modern horror films, he vaguely looks like Psycho Gorman. If anyone's seen the- <laughs> Psycho Gorman, yeah. definitely not as cool and definitely doesn't have the personality, but vaguely he looks like him. Let's go with that. Um, A lot of hunky boys in this movie, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you like Nazis, yeah, all sorts of hunky boys. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, again, um, this is one of those movies that um, I, I always had fond memories of, but I never really went back and watched it. And watching it this week for the show, it just reminded me, you know, why I like that creature. You know, he's soulless. He's feelingless. He basically, you know, he he is uh, nature over nurture, and I appreciate that. Obviously, he's a, you know, ageless, evil, you know, blah, blah, blah. They don't get into too much of his backstory, more about the backstory of him getting trapped in the keep, but not so much as, uh, ex- you know, his uh, creation or anything like that. But again, um, a great little film. Uh, I understand how it could have a lot of hate because it's a little bit more cerebral than some horror films. I know it's, it's not as visceral as some would like, but ultimately a great little story, really, really good performances Um, The ending, eh, it it leaves a little to be desired. I mean, the ending almost feels more like a sci-fi ending than an actual creature feature or horror film ending. But, you know, you take the good with the bad. So overall, I really enjoy The Keep and I'm very glad that I got a chance to watch it again. So let's go ahead and start with Iris. Tell me about The Keep.
3: Okay, so I'm one of those that completely loves this movie. I got to see it several times in the movie theaters uh, when it first came out. And uh, I just fell in love with the movie completely. I, I loved the the creature. You know, I'm a big creature feature girl anyway. So and I mean, who doesn't want to see Nazis get torn in half? Right. And um, but just the story <laughs> itself, I really loved because it, it was this. You know, here come the bad guys and. You know, they're trying to uh, kind of like the, the guys are like, oh, this has to be silver. It's silver. Get the silver cross. And I'm like, mm, yeah, no, that's not a good sign. Um <laughs> And then of course it's funny because have...
1: I found myself saying Nazis are so greedy, but then as soon as I finish that sentence, I'm like, wait a minute, Americans probably wouldn't be any different, so I'll you shut know, up.
3: we 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 probably would have too. The first Those thing Those crosses we would done...
1: were made of oil. It would be the same movie. <laughs> yeah,
2: <no. laughs> yeah.
3: So, um, yeah, and then of course they have to bring in somebody they hate. And, and disown to come in to help them. I, I love that part of the, the the flick too. And then, of course, all the Jewish connotations of this being a golem, and all that, and and how um, you know, the professor Kuza was thinking. <clears throat> sorry about that. Uh, it, you know, Professor Kuza was thinking, yeah, you know, we're gonna use this guy, and he's gonna kill all the Nazis in the world. Okay, yeah, but still, and then comes the the silent hero the you know he scotland's character which another piece of this movie that i just love because not only does he come in you know nobody knows who he is he's that that stranger uh he
1: seduces the girl (laughs) He must be charming. I mean, they were in bed within the hour of meeting. Right? (laughs) The the word seduces is doing a lot of heavy lifting
3: there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. He enthralls her. That's what he did. He enthralls her. That's, you know, kind of like he stared at her and she's like, I got to fuck you. So that's basically what happened.
1: Uh, <laughs> Honestly, though, with those eyes, if he stared at me, I'd probably fuck him, too. <laughs> I know, weren't
3: his eyes beautiful?
1: Right? <laughs> <Those were laughs> definitely not Jack Crawford's eyes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh,
3: but still. Uh, and then, you know, what you were saying about Tangerine Dream, it was the very first time that I had heard Tangerine Dream was in this movie. And, of course, you know, it's at the end of the credits. And I totally... I seeked out Tangerine Dream because of this movie, which is, you know, one of my favorite groups of all time. So I have this movie to thank for that also. Um, but like you were saying, though, it, they were wasted on this because as a kid, I just loved it. Because anytime the music came on, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I watched it again. I was like. Why is it there no more more of their music? And it's just like you were saying, because, yes, it needed more music. But, uh, yeah, this is one of the like you said, you know, I I love this movie. Uh, Why? I think it's because of the characters and just it's a creature feature and and I'm supposed to love it. Sorry about that. But, yeah, uh, you know, this is this is a this is up there for me as one of the my favorite movies of the 80s.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, Doug, why don't you come on in? Tell me about The Keep. So The Keep was,
2: as I I think I referenced earlier, a movie that I had always meant to see but didn't ever watch, specifically because of the fact that I was waiting for the big Blu-ray release. I mean, this was a, a movie notorious... For the fact that its director hates it, that uh, its release was an incredibly troubled one, that it was taken away from him and re-edited. And uh, I think that that's an important part of the story that we haven't really been talking about up to this point, which is that because that this movie that was really designed to be three hours long is now you know barely 90 minutes, that it's a fucking mess of a movie. And it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And the reason that Scott Glenn's character just kind of shows up And people like are – like his character is so ill-defined. That might be by by definition. I've never read the book. That might be like the the whole point of it. But like even after finishing the movie, I have no idea what he was really supposed to be. It's still a lot of fun to watch simply because Michael Mann is an amazing director. This batshit fucking concept where it's Nazis who are battling this monster that have to get a Jewish scholar out of a concentration camp to help them. That alone as a concept is so – fucking cool that that it's almost enough to sustain it but like we get that one scene at the concentration camp and 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 they like hey you guy we we need a why did they take his daughter with him i guess he probably said that they had to but there's no scene of that happening we get nothing Mm -hmm. about like that he just suddenly is there at the keep like it's actually like one scene he's at the concentration camp the next one he's at the keep there's all of this kind of supplementary information that's completely missing from the movie. Before we started, I was talking to Jerry. There's that part where uh, the scholar's daughter, Ian McKellen's daughter, is almost sexually assaulted by Nazis and the creature stops it from happening and their heads are basically imploded like they're just destroyed and there's no fallout at all. You don't see that Nazis discover their bodies and be like, oh, the creature is real. It's just that suddenly now we know that – I mean we already knew the creature was real, but the, the Gabriel Byrne character that's introduced as this kind of hard-headed, terrible, hair-cutted Nazi, he's skeptical, but we never see the evolution of his belief. It's just, oh, now the creature is killing all of us, so of course I believe in him now. It's just so strange. And I guess part of it is that the special effects coordinator died right as he was about to start working on a lot of the post-production. And again, the, the editing has turned it into this mess of a movie that makes no goddamn sense. And people who like the book hate the movie. It's still – like it's it's not great, right? It can't be great because it's such a goddamn mess, but it's still a lot of fun to watch. And the Tangerine Dream stuff that's here is really good, but you you just get the sense that everything here should be better because – the stuff that's supposed to make it better exists, but just never made it into the movie. So it's a really frustrating movie to watch. The performances are really strange too. Uh, like Ian McKellen, I don't know what he's doing in this movie. Maybe it's the fact that he's trying this American <laughs> accent, but he's playing, he's like really playing it really cartoonish while everyone else is kind of taking it really seriously. And Jürgen are going to was terrific. And he's really, really good. And he's, he's like the sympathetic Nazi character that we're supposed to be like, he's kind of our main character all throughout <laughs> it. But, uh, But by the end, I just I had no idea what was going on. I don't know why William William Morgan Shepard, he plays like a a priest in the town. I don't know why he gets so angry later. It just seems like he (laughs) goes from this like sympathetic character to and then there's like there's I think there's one cast off line of dialogue that the creature's existence is like uh, turning the people in the town uh, is like perverting them in some way. But you never see any other person in the town. So you don't know what that's all about either. It's just it's a beautiful movie. It's so good looking. And it's such a mess that it's almost more fascinating than if it was just a good movie. So yeah, I'm super happy I saw it. I'm going to watch it a ton more times. But boy, it's one of those things that you'd recommend to a very specific person.
1: Yeah, yeah, this movie. I mean, you could you could see the blueprint where if a lot of the footage that was taken out would be, you know, if they did a Snyder cut, basically, um, we would definitely see a more fleshed out story and maybe even one that makes a little bit more sense because it's true scott Glenn's character just comes in does what he needs to do and goes away and it's like <laughs> oh, okay cool um i did there there was one shot in the film though right before the sex scene the pointless sex scene where uh burn is standing behind not gabriel it, um scott Glenn, his character is uh standing in front of uh uh the daughter in front of uh yeah dr Kuzo's daughter And did you guys notice the mirror in the background that uh, Scott Glenn's character didn't cast a reflection? Oh, no! (laughs) Yeah. Quick shot, but... Dude, no way, really? (laughs) Oh, my God, I have to
3: watch it again.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He was a vampire. Now that whole sexual thing makes
1: a lot more sense. Oh, yeah. Oh, the (laughs) sexual part of it, absolutely. I mean, hell, like Iris and I both said, those eyes, they can get anyone in bed, but still... (laughs) Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guaranteed, you throw another 10 to 15 minutes in there with Scott Glenn's character. I don't necessarily need backstory of the character so much as his relationship with Radu, um, <laughs> and, you know, cause Radu knew who he was right away. As soon as he saw him, he's like, you, you know, so there's obviously a history there that we're not privy to. And, you know, that kind of sucks, but and I was also thinking that, man, this movie needs a 4K transfer, which we'll probably never get. But it's just this movie is so dark that if I could get a physical copy with true blacks and whites in it, that it would probably look stellar. I mean, it still looks great. It's just some of the scenes inside The Keep are a little dark. And since, of course, we're we're basically watching a VHS, tra- a digital VHS transfer of the damn thing unless there was a laser disc i mean maybe this is a laser disc but either way it is very dark the credits are almost illegible at the beginning of the film i don't know uh, how it looked on your screens at home but here on my you know big ass 4k tv the red credits almost got washed out um i'll I'll detect it at the beginning as well I think yeah, I think it has yeah.
2: been upraised from like laser discs. and I think maybe someone even scanned a thirty-five millimeter print recently. So people are trying to get a decent version out
1: there. But yeah, the text is hard to read in this. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you know, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed that we get a physical copy. I don't think it'll ever happen. Um, I just don't feel like this movie's popular enough or beloved enough to really get that kind of treatment, the 4K treatment. I mean, you know, maybe we'll get a discount Blu-ray someday. Who knows? But not likely. So I won't hold my breath. But uh, let's go ahead and get Mike's opinion on The Keep.
0: (laughs) All right, The Keep, yeah. High concept, kind of messy, kind of sloppy as execution. But, of course, once you find out that, it's like a fraction of the movie it intending to be at least as far as running time and content uh that doesn't i mean it helps explain why it doesn't really fill story pieces or those elements but um i, I definitely picked up on think you know as soon as a creature shows up i'm like oh so it's a psycho gorman prequel like this is how he really got <laughs> conjured into the world cuz uh... i thought the same thing um I I felt like once I got down there and some of the um, some of the sequences down, there gave me like a, a Raiders of the Lost Ark end feeling when uh, things start <laughs> happening down there because you know the whole Nazi tie in and everything. I was like, oh, inter- interesting. But yeah, not much of a score, not much music going on. Uh, you know, mostly I agree with everyone say. It, it's kind of a it's a hard movie to dissect just because a, it feels like there's more there's more that's supposed to be going on than we actually see. And that's just because of probably the way it had to be edited and chopped up. And I I could see why the director's, you know, angry, doesn't want anything to do with it, probably is not in favor of a release. As far as in this form, I mean, I don't know how much of the footage is even salvageable to where they could, you know, put it back together if that was possible. I, I would be interested though, because I think there's enough here that uh, makes you kind of, Curious about what it could Have been Um, you know Maybe it's just another 90 minutes of a mess (laughs) Thrown in (laughs) But I I, I wouldn't mind Finding out you know I I think there There is enough there um, To You know to give the intrigue of like What what would a three hour version Of the keep be Maybe not three you know maybe you know you put it All back in and you cut that down somewhat to Have an actual cut that the director would be happy Mm With but The interest is there on my part, but this was a first time watch for me. It's a movie I had heard about, you know, another one of those ones where obviously, you know, without it having a proper release widely available, it's just something that was kind of known but not seen. And uh, what a perfect way to see it for the first time for, you know, a a show like this. So, you know, overall, I'm still positive on the movie i'm just uh i'm just curious to see what else was there um that we didn't get to see um from the keep and you know i i will it ever get any type of big proper release who knows i mean there's enough distribution companies and Production companies now that you would think this is one of those types of movies that could get snatched up and you know they're gonna do their best to grab as much footage available as possible and give us a proper uh, release and running time and all that stuff. So I guess uh, I guess cross fingers because there's been like plenty of obscure and not even that great stuff that gets those kind of releases. So maybe it's just a matter of would the rights even present themselves to the proper companies to do a treatment on, but I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, I, I, I did like it. Um, I, I want to know more about it, man. I want to see, i to see some more the keep, let's keep it around to, uh, get the proper, get the proper release on it.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, this conversation has pretty much convinced me. I'm going to start the campaign as soon as we're done with, uh, this episode, hashtag release the man cut. I'm starting it. I'm starting it right now. Let's, let's yeah. see if we let's see if we can get it to happen. If we could get a damn four and a half hour fucking superhero movie because of a bunch of people, you know, clamoring for it, I'm pretty sure we can get a fairly artistic horror film that actually has uh, a little bit of notoriety released. So yeah, fuck it. Join yeah, us, people. Give Hashtag release give
0: the us, man cut. in <laughs> McKellen. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, when yeah Ian McKellen
4: showed up sort of
1: Doug about some of the performances too especially Ian McKellen in the finale if if he yelled take it one more <laughs> time i was going to blow my brains out yeah holy shit it it was definitely over the top i understand the passion that he was going for but it just didn't come off um the way i don't think anyway it came off the way it was intended to but yeah um I mean, I'm not going to say that it was a paycheck for these guys. I mean, Gabriel Byrne is still, you know, really good. Scott Glenn, in the little bits we get of him, you know, in his deadpan performance, very good. Jurgen obviously always great. So, you know, there, there's plenty here to work with. Um, but, yeah, the, the performances definitely could have been slightly better, especially from our Oscar winner there. But, you know, what are you going to do? So that is The Keep, 1983. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, with that said, we're moving right along to my gem of a pick. Um, <laughs> this this one was purely picked off a list. Uh, truth be told, most uh, some you know sometimes uh, for the show when we come together on a theme, uh, you know, some of us might already have movies in mind. Sometimes not. Sometimes you know we're pulling off uh, our a list. Um, this time. I had to grab something on the list, and to be honest, the majority of movies on the list are ones I hadn't seen, um, including this one. It's called The Trident Force, 1989. Um, So, uh, how can I even get into this? (laughs) So, right off the bat, lots of action movies in this era already featured kind of like the soft stereotypes when it came to, well, I guess the varying degrees of... Some racist stereotypes when it came to like, you know, our group of mercenaries or armies are going to take on evil doers from whatever region of the world. So that's almost a given that that was going to somewhat happen when I picked this movie before, like even looking into it or seeing it not only is that present in this but it's almost like they take it to a new and lazy level of like like they, all, they almost already expect the viewers to expect the racism so on this one they're like yeah like uh, i think i was telling doug in the chat uh as soon as, as soon as the movie opened up and like it just says somewhere in the middle east like it, it, they're so lazy with it that the you know we're not even gonna be region specific just assuming the viewer's like oh yeah i got it like if you just say middle east I, well you know everybody there is the same i guess according to them but uh so i mean i guess the finish uh, the official synopsis the palestinian terrorist abu Hassad can only be stopped by a group of soldiers called the trident force i mean it's sure. generic as can be, as is the movie, as is a lot of like, you know, a low, lower budget action movies of the time.
2: I, this my, one my, take, sorry like to interrupt you, but I'm just trying to think about it. If I was like reading say the biggest news story going on at the time that we're recording this, and I was like Hmm. What's the most insensitive movie I could choose to watch <laughs> <laughs> to reflect the political difficulties that are going on right now at this very moment? I think the Trident Force. I couldn't even come up with a worse example than the fucking Trident Force. I
0: I don't think I could write something worse
4: like for the situation.
2: Yeah, it, it's. Yeah,
0: it's very. I mean, this it comes off like you know zero. Well, I, uh, maybe there is zero knowledge. Maybe there's just zero thought or care about it. But I, I think you know, I think the generic nature of it is, is one of the biggest crimes of the writing and just the way characters are portrayed. Um <laughs> yeah this uh, there's not much redeeming i mean i guess some of the action is decent considering the budget but i don't know uh, i i thought, you, uh, the reason i even chose this in the first place because i saw kind of like generally you know i saw the box the box art, i was like okay it might not be good but sometimes those lower budget action movies there are at least some entertainment value in them. And I mean, as the movie's going on i'm just like Wow, this this is really not going to offer much at all, is it? And then next thing I know, it's over, and I'm like, wow, there was there was not much you know, going on in there. It
1: felt <laughs> like it was four hours long.
0: Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I I don't even I, I'm I, I'm almost done already talking about it, but let's see what everyone else has to say. Although I'm not <laughs> I'm not a uh, I'm not predicting it's going to get any better from here. So let's start with Venom. What did you think of
4: Trident Force? Pass.
1: (laughs) No, okay. Okay, yeah, me and Mike are going to have to have a very long discussion about podcast preparation after this show. Let's all go to the IMDB page and take a look at the Trident Force, shall we? Let's see, one-line synopsis. Mm, Very intricate storyline going on there. This movie is from 1989, which makes it a, what, 32-year-old movie? It has 34 reviews. People hate this movie so much they won't even take the time to write a shitty review. You know how bad a movie has to be for a troll to not want to take the time to tear it apart? So, yeah, there we go. Let's see. The list of actors, we've got about 30 to 40 names here. There is only one picture of any of the actors in this movie. So this movie is filled with a bunch of friends of the director and producer. So again, ah, oh, what a stellar production this is going to be. And then, and people, I've got about a dozen of these red flags on the IMDb page, but I'm just going to go over one more for you. This is a United States Filipino co-production. Mike, name me one U.S.-Filipino co-production that you that's not a Roger Corman movie that people enjoy. I don't think it exists. I'm sorry I'm being a facetious asshole right now, but I think Mike deserves this, so uh, <laughs> I'm just going to keep going. Aside this from goddamn movie. Now. Holy shit. Um, racist as all hell. The entire movie is ADR'd, and ADR usually only talks about dialogue, but no, no, no. Every single sound effect, even, even the freaking birds chirping in the background, is done in a studio in this movie. Again, another wonderful sign of a quality production. Um, The story is so goddamn disjointed. I didn't understand the second act of this movie at all. I didn't know if they were in a training session. I didn't know if it was a real mission. Some of the guns had live ammo. Some of the guns didn't have live ammo. There was explosives during the training mission. I mean, this this fucking movie makes so little sense that I almost didn't want to finish it, but just... The the sadomasochist in me had to finish it. So I, I just I literally have no positive words about this film other than the fact that at the first half of the film part of the score sounds like a discount giallo, which <laughs> I'm not necessarily saying that's good. I'm saying that it reminded me of something good, so it made me smile. And then the very last shot of the movie was. I'm not going to say it was good, but I laughed my fucking ass off when it happened. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't recommend this movie to anyone, so I'm going to spoil it. Fuck it. The movie ends with a goddamn decapitation. I mean, literally ends with a decapitation. Somebody gets decapitated, closing credits. Boom. That's the movie. I laughed for a solid two minutes after that happened. Uh, the, the fact that they decided to just end the movie like that, I... I I literally have a two-page list here of everything that this movie did wrong, but it's, it would be a disservice and really an injustice to the listeners to uh, go over all of it. So let's just say um, Trident Force is, without a shadow of a doubt, the worst action movie I've ever seen. I would rather watch uh, Deadly Prey 2 80 times before I watch this again. I would rather watch Deathstalker 4... 12 times before ever watching this piece of shit again. Um, I'm just going to leave this with this is easily the worst film I've ever reviewed in my very short podcasting career. And if I ever review a film worse than this, I will quit podcasting. Back to you, Mike.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, it's obviously in the movie, you're talking about the decapitation scene, yeah. That was their big uh, build-up to get that. And then as soon as that happens, they're like, ain't nothing left to do from here. Roll
4: credits. <laughs> I,
1: I there's so much wrong with it. But the, but then the mere fact that this world leader is somehow on the battlefield at the end, one-on-one with a soldier, it's like, oh, oh yeah, I'm sure, you know. I'm sure Kim Jong-il and George Bush would end up on the battlefield in front of each other, armed to the teeth. Oh, my God. It it takes such liberties with reality that I'm... My head hurts just thinking about it right now. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to stop talking.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, let's see how much Iris' head hurts from talking about it. What did you think, Iris?
4: (laughs) Okay,
3: so... (laughs) This movie, when I saw it, I was like, ooh, this is right up my alley. And then I started watching it, and I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck am I watching? (laughs) First of all, okay, so you have this trident force, right? And and it's kind of like a farce of Delta Force in a bit. It's kind of like a... I was like is this a satire of several movies because it looked I thought it, it had a little bit of Delta Force it had a little bit of uh, Rambo it had a little bit of Force of One it had a little bit of POW it, so um yeah it was um interesting and and this port <sighs> I don't know, it seemed like every single trope that you could have of a Middle Eastern country was in this. At the very from the very beginning of the guy who is basically I don't know if she was enjoyed or not, butt fucking the girl that when they come in to interrupt him. And when he is done, he goes to the boy in the corner. I mean, (laughs) how many more tropes can you throw in here? History twink. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, you've got the good guys who are also supposedly Middle Eastern, but they were educated because they went to London. (laughs) Uh, And then uh, whenever you hear the canter. Or, or you know, the caller. Um, when you have, you know, when when they're doing their prayers. I, I think I could say Allah Akbar better than they
4: did.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and and no no insult to our any of our Muslim brothers and sisters out there that listen. I, I'm just trying to make a point that this movie was just so bad. Please stay away from it. Um. But, yeah, it, but the story, you know, I was like, well, maybe the story will do something for me. But it was 45 minutes to an hour in. They were still training. Mm-hmm. They had not done anything else. And, and there's so much. It was hard to tell who the good guys and the bad guys were after a while. You know, like um, the first time that the bad guys went after... Um you think they were going after nuns or something and these guys were dressed up as nuns and everything. So um at the end there is a um kind of like a, a peace treaty talk or something and the trident force was was all everybody. I mean there, there was no one there really that was not supposed to be there except for maybe the the press. But um, Trident Force was pretending to be all of these people that were supposed to be uh, held hostage. And, you know, they ruined all that. And it's just like, oh, my God, this is so awful. So, so awful. But at the ending, though, um, this was a basically a kind of like a a, a revenge. Not only just a revenge, but it was kind of like, you know Uh, how would I want to say that? It's kind of like he had to do it because the bad guy kills his brother. So he has to go kill the bad guy and he has a ceremonial sword. So he is shooting and killing everyone. And Oh, we can't, we can't forget how they're firing the guns. They're, they're, they're not even firing the guns. They're just shaking. (laughs) 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 Could you not afford It's Just Something, but no, they're, You know what I was surprised? I was surprised that we didn't have little flashes of light coming out of the end of those guns. Anyway, um, but one thing, though, guys, and I have to give them credit for this. They used a woman as a suicide bomber when that wasn't even thought of. So kudos to them there. That's about the only thing I can think of that was like, oh, wow, it's very futuristic and, and forward-thinking so of these
2: guys. I know, so progressive. <laughs> I think the only woman in the entire movie, aside from that one reporter character, the what right happened to blonde. her?
3: <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean. <laughs> oh, Mike, you did it again. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs>
4: It almost feels me, on purpose at this point. I, I know it
3: have... does, doesn't it? You did this on purpose.
4: <laughs>
0: oh man, it sucks because it's like in, from this era. There's so many like low budget action movies. That at least something is fun about them. But man, I, I found the one. I guess I don't I don't <laughs> know. I don't know how I pulled it off this time uh all right uh we still got to hear from doug though on uh trident force and i'm sure oh, he's gonna wanna say <laughs> plenty of great things about it so doug take it away
2: well i mean i feel like we're beating up on it pretty hard and i mean it absolutely 100 percent deserves it um i mean we're also coming at it it's difficult because the the version of it that we all watched looks like shit and it sounds like shit but even if it didn't look or sound like shit it's also an incredibly offensive movie in a lot of ways, you know, and and even and perhaps it would it feels particularly offensive to have a movie about a Palestinian terrorist uh, right now in history. But the way that this movie approaches a lot of that material is really ham-fisted. The very fact that the, our lead character, even though, you know, he's a Muslim and he's shown to be heroic, then it's still a Filipino actor who's been his skin has been darkened. And, and I mean, it, it's it's. There's a lot of shit in this movie, even outside of if you can just enjoy it on a jingoistic level. There's a lot of shit in the background that's just unpleasant and not good or fun in any way to watch. I'm going to put up a small defense of it, which is that I think the scope of the action of this is actually much more impressive than a lot of the films that were uh, that were meant to appeal to Americans that were made in the Philippines at that time. Uh, there's there's Between like 1985 and 1991, there's like 100 – different uh vietnam quote-unquote vietnam movies that were or or returning to vietnam or post first blood part two movies that were shot in the philippines Mm -hmm. a lot of them have really lousy action the action in this is not great i'm not going to say that it's not like the gunplay is really impressive but there is a lot of it particularly that opening sequence for some reason they have an opening sequence that lasts for 12 fucking minutes and then do a opening credits afterwards which i don't even know what they were thinking in terms of that but the, the scope of that and the amount of of explosions that are happening and stunts going on. There is something that, if anything, I'm using this as a positive, but in some ways it's a negative, right? So they obviously had the resources to make something better than what they did. The really confusing thing – so I'm putting all the offensive shit to the side for a second. The really fucked up confusing thing about this movie that makes it so strange to me is that at its core, it just wants to be a ripoff of the Dirty Dozen. It's taking these soldiers, these disparate soldiers, and turning them into the Trident Force. So what you've all been referring to where like three-quarters of the movie is just these training sequences, well, that's fine. It's a a really easy structure to do. The problem is that we're told that each one of these members of the Trident Force – are like the best soldier from their particular area. You have the best soldier from Canada. You have the best soldier from Israel. You have them all together in this group. Then like how much fucking training do they need? And they're treated as if they are like the the, the people from the Dirty Dozen, like completely unknowledgeable uh, uh, like, like prisoners who have almost uh, you know the most basic training. In this case, they're treated like total shit. They even have that ox guy who basically is on the verge of trying to kill them at any particular time in the course of their training. But – even aside from that, this whole movie is set up okay. The Trident Force, they've completed their training. Now they can work together. We see them in one... We, they do the war games thing, which again is a total ripoff of uh, Dirty Dozen as well. Then we finally get the climax of the movie. This movie isn't interested in the Trident Force. They care about It cares about Ahmed and his revenge at the end. The... Trident Force don't get to show their stuff doing this great mission. They have that one fucking scene where they're pretending to be world leaders, and that's it. I mean, I can't even tell you who half the Trident Force members were even supposed to be. The only reason I can even distinguish any of them is that there's a part where they're all throwing fucking slurs at each other, so that's the only way you're supposed to be able to define who they are. So it's a really weird movie, and it's hard to understand who it's meant to appeal for. But even at its core, this was a movie that was meant to be sold to the U.S., Think about how fucking bad this movie had to be, that it has so little profile that they probably couldn't even have done that in the late 80s. It was even worse than all of those shitty action movies at that time period. So, yeah, it's really bad. I do think it's interesting in how, how bad it is and what kind of bad it is, but I would never recommend it to anyone because it is offensive as fuck.
1: I'd be interested to count the uh, (laughs) used shell casings in this movie. (laughs) Um, Gunfights. It's got to be near a Guinness record. God damn it. I I don't think we go more than three scenes without a gunfight. There's even a bar scene where you know... uh, Ahmed and or whatever Rashid whatever his damn name was and and Prentice and Leslie Prentice were in the bar talking and just out of nowhere people just come <laughs> in shooting and then the scene ends like there's no context to it they're they're just random rebels terrorists whatever you want to call them so yeah man, man. so many gunfights i couldn't isn't get that, over it isn't that the sequence where they're it's actually a fake gunfight so
2: Ahmed can be captured to be brought into the training of the fucking uh, Trident Force, which is such a strange way. Why didn't they just ask the guy? But I guess they all these different uh, the different people in the force they have to fake their deaths first, even though we don't see anyone else go through that. <laughs>
1: what a weird movie.
2: <laughs> oh,
4: yeah,
1: the weirdest uh, loading up montage ever. It's got Middle Eastern music playing while we got a Rambo type guy preparing for war. It's really weird. Like, it's like, am, am I supposed to be digging this or or what? It's Rashid. It's the guy that we're following. It's our, it's our antagonist, or excuse me, our protagonist. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's, you know, because usually, you know, as Americans, we're used to Muslims being, you know, the villains in you know a majority of our movies where they appear. Um, But then here we are watching a Muslim, you know, getting ready for war, and there's Middle Eastern music playing, and it's like, what's the tone? I'm not sure what they're going for here, you know? So, (laughs) man, yeah, this movie, yeah, it it definitely hurts your brain watching this one.
4: All
0: right, well, let's stop punishing our brains for now, at least, um, and move the hell on from Trident Force, probably for good. And that, (laughs) and that's going to leave us with Iris's pick, which I don't think you can go um, down from *Trident Force*. So you're welcome uh, for picking a movie that came out a year before your pick. So, Iris, what did you pick?
3: I picked *The Grim Prairie Tales* because, uh, from what I remember of my youth, I kind of liked it. You know, it was one of those uh we're bored and have nothing else to do. I don't have any duty. Let's go to the movies. And that's mm-hmm. what we did. And then we went and got drunk. Um so yeah. So Grand Prairie Tales basically it is a tale or a heart. They're trying to make it as an a western horror film. But um I don't know about you guys, but to me it just really I just didn't see it that way I saw it more as a Kind of like campfire stories You know Uh, And basically it's an anthology It's four separate stories And uh, The wraparound is that It's two travelers Sitting around a prairie campfire Uh, James Earl Jones uh, Plays Morrison Who is a bounty hunter And then there's Fairly Deeds who is Played uh, by Brad Dourif And of course he's a clerk And he is on his way To go see his wife And uh, Morrison just comes in And he goes, can I join you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, I, I, I guess And uh, of course Being a bounty hunter, he has a body And um, <laughs> Farley Goes like, dude, who the hell Are you and why do you have a body? <laughs> well, they go back and forth And back and forth and they start telling stories The first story is told by Morrison, and it's about an Indian tribe or not an Indian tribe, but an indigenous tribe uh, that takes revenge on an old man who went through, you know, sacred ground. I kind of like that one. Um, And then impressed, uh, Deeds goes, well, give me another story. So then he tells them a story about a guy who is seduced by this supposedly pregnant woman. Who really isn't a pregnant woman, but is actually Bill Quiss from American Gods. Hmm. Because, you know, she basically sucks the man in through her vagina and then she's pregnant. Um <laughs> uh, Billquist is one of my favorite characters, but whatever. Uh and then there is another one. Then Deeds is like, Well, that's that that one sucked, dude. I'm gonna tell you now I'm gonna tell you one. And it's basically this is the only one that I, I don't think is a horror based at all or sci-fi, or whatever. Um, This one, uh, the guy, I think they're like homesteaders, and this one has uh, Atherton in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, um, he is a homesteader that had lost, uh, during the Civil War, lost everything. So he finds a place, they have something, but the town sheriff and some of the bigger people there Come in and go, hey, uh, we got a job to do, which is turns out to be a lynching. And the little girl watches it and her opinion of her dad changes. But in the end, she still loves him. Um, but uh, and then uh, I think the very last one was about a gunfighter and what happens to him. How, I guess, uh, a life that he took comes back to haunt him. But it was um, they were interesting. i I little stories I kind of like them um, not as much this time around but they were still interesting and um, something that uh, I really didn't see in this but I read a an article that you guys uh, you know sent out how this takes kind of like a feminist twist to it all because it seems like the women are all in charge
1: uh, I saw um, that instantly yeah
3: yeah, you know, and it's kind of like, um, of course, Billquist, the the woman, you know, the guys are about to, the guys like, she had some guys try to rape her and she obviously sucked those men in because she had a belly. And then this guy that supposedly was going to help her, she's like, just don't do anything to me. Well, he, I mean, she basically seduces him, but and then, you know, so she was in charge because she was there. the women in uh, the woman with the homesteader. Um mm-hmm. they, you know, that lady was like, she took charge of the whole thing. You know, her husband was like, woman, get inside. But in the end, she was like, leave the girl alone, get inside the tent and just, you know, so she basically took charge there. But the other two, I'm not too sure much of it. But um, yeah, so it was it was interesting to me, but uh, I would like to hear what Doug thinks about this.
2: So this is a movie that I had definitely seen on VHS at some point in the nineteen nineties, but I had no memory of it. I would have seen it almost certainly because Brad Dorf was in it. Uh and he and James Earl Jones are the not only are they the the characters that kind of branch out to all the stories and they are the surrounding story of the movie itself, but they're by far the highlights of the movie. In fact, they're so much better than everything else in the movie that it kind of dwarfs the actual stories that they're telling rare enough in an anthology movie where the surrounding story is better than the anthology segments themselves. But it's just, I think it really comes down to watching these two great actors kind of, uh, play off of each other. And it's fun to watch those, the, the, the performances there. One of the things that, one of the really notable things about uh, Grim Prairie Tales is that the cinematographer is Janice Kaminsky, Steven Spielberg's cinematographer. So the guy who would go on to be the cinematographer for Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan is the guy who shot this. And you get the sense, even though we were all watching it on 4x3 and – we're watching a VHS transfer of, of this movie. You get a sense that there are some really nice kind of shots in this, but it's hard to tell. I mean, the scope of it has been shrunk down by both the image size and the scope of the stories, which are very, very small. It, the, I was so shocked by the last story taking place in a Western town because I started to think, oh, they just must must not have the ability to use like a Western town because all the movies just take place in these kind of really wide open areas and telling this very kind of small short stories the the first story told is so there's nothing to it i mean there really is the guy goes to an indian burial ground he has a uh, an interaction with a uh, indigenous uh, chief and then he's basically buried alive and that's the whole thing i mean it's so short and the the difficult thing to square is that because this movie at its heart is less a horror movie and more like a tone poem. Like it's a movie that's trying to set a kind of creepy tone, but it's not that interested in scares necessarily that when you go back to these characters, Brad Dourif and James Earl Jones, and they're like, wow, that was a great spooky story. You you don't believe him because you just saw it. You know, it's not that scary. How could he have told that in a terrifying way? And even when you see the first two stories told by, James Earl Jones, and then the third story by Brad dorf he's like, this one's going to scare the pants off of you. And then it's just this kind of depressing story about a father who's racist and a mother that's trying to break him of these horrible habits. And it's just like, well, I, I think that's interesting. I'm watching that. I'm engaged with it. But it's like, what the fuck? Are they telling these these campfire stories? Is this the kind of story that he's trying to tell? It, it, you know, there's no supernatural element to it whatsoever. So it's a really weird movie it's almost like there are four short films that have kind of been shoehorned into being a uh an anthology movie which happens all the time but i don't think that that's the case here all of it was written by wayne Coe, who obviously is a very smart gentleman i think he's well known as a storyboard artist generally uh i will say that there are moments in this movie that i really like particularly the small animated segment in the fourth uh, story, yeah. which is like aside from the 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 uh, interactions between Brad Dourif and James Earl Jones, is by far the highlight of this entire movie. It's so good, in fact, that it makes me wish that like this was just an animated movie from start to finish with that sort of style. It's so out there and cinematic and interesting and unique it's a, it's an entirely animated style that you very rarely see so there's a lot to recommend it and there are this movie has its uh fans by the way some people really think of it as a as a superior anthology movie but i will say in terms of the four anthology segments in it it's maybe has one that i kind of like I mean, I don't like the last one very much. Uh, the, the the gunfighter thing doesn't really make any sense. It's not like the guy should be punished for for killing this person that in a gunfight that was completely fair. I, it didn't seem like it. it 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 tries to do a Tales from the Crypt thing, but the characters being punished, you're wondering if, it, I mean, the, in most of the instances, they deserve it. But in that one, I just didn't really get what his punishment was necessarily for. I like the third segment the best. I think William, William Atherton doesn't do a lot of great acting in it, but he's a familiar face that I liked seeing in it. I felt like it was the most developed in terms of what it wanted to be, but it also was the furthest away from being... A horror short. So to me, I think it's not that I dislike the movie. I'm just really confused by it. Uh, Maybe if I were to see it in a beautiful, you know, high definition transfer, which took advantage of the scenery a little bit more, I'd have a better appreciation for it as a whole. But as is, it's just sort of like a very strange and inconsistent anthology film.
3: Indeed. You know what? Um, Maybe maybe that's uh, another reason why I was like, going, oh, this isn't as good as I remember. Because uh, being that I got to see it in, you know, on the big screen. Oh,
2: interesting. Yeah. You know,
3: may, maybe that's what it what kind of like, oh, this is this isn't as cool as I, I remember it being. But oh, cool. Thank you, Doug. Um, How about you, Mike? What do you think?
0: So this was the first time watch for me. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, going into it, when I saw the cast, I was pretty hopeful. I was like maybe it's one of those movies that slips through cracks and there is no good reason that I know of that it's not released and I ended up pretty disappointed. <laughs> um I, I feel like when you get an anthology you you pretty much go in expecting like, okay, there's you know, there's gonna be highs and lows. What you don't want is kind of where it just is kind of an even flow all throughout, but then None of them are that good. I mean, it's I, – I agree with Doug. I, I think the animated sequence was, like, what perked my eyes and up the most. Like, oh, like, maybe the rest of this segment will play out like this because that was actually pretty cool. And considering, like, how, you know, I guess reserved or, you know, lower budget the movie – Seeing overall, I thought that like whoever was responsible for the animated sequence, how short it was, I was like, well, that person knows what the hell they were doing, obviously, and I wish we would have got more of that. Uh, James Earl Jones, cool to see him, but he, he he looks like he stumbled in off like the set of Conan with like half out of makeup, <laughs> like, like oh he my hadn't God. quite taken off so all the crowbar. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Like he's on his way back to the trailer and they snatch him up. Hey, can you come uh, shoot a couple scenes for this movie we're doing? Uh, do you want me to get cleaned up? No, no, you actually kind of look good half half in the in the make for not. But I mean, James Earl Jones, Brad Dorf, uh, Atherton. Like, there's enough names in this movie where I don't know what they all read <laughs> like in a script to be like, yeah, I'm gonna do it. Um <sighs> Man, I I do uh, I agree. I think the third story is probably the best. Uh, just it's built as a horror western. I mean, I get more western than I do horror. It, I guess that's probably the most disappointing uh, part is it didn't feel very much horror to me. I was looking just for more fun in the stories, but I guess you know I guess the title Grim Prairie Tales is trying to warn me uh, they're not going to be you know fun and i know fun doesn't always mean laughing or like lots of enjoyment but i just hope it you know anthologies they tend to uh have a little more uh mix of you know tone and
2: the type of mike Mike, i think this movie does think it's darkly humorous (laughs) i think that's what (laughs) we're supposed to be getting from it i mean certainly the the ending of it is supposed to get that feeling of that that kind of black humor, but I don't. I think it's inconsistent throughout the stories, for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. I I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, probably a movie that I'm not gonna be revisiting in the near future. I I I don't know. Uh, it's just, man, I don't even know what else to say about this one. <laughs> it, 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 it kind of it just kind of dragged for me i i guess i just didn't find the tales themselves that interesting i mean because i because it was james Earl jones and brad dorf having the conversation i, I was almost kind of more interested to see like their conflict and their interactions which you probably should not want in a anthologies you're you're more interested in kind of the wraparound and how that's going to go than the actual stories but it's probably just because I'm familiar with both the actors that like, I, I wanted to see more from them and see how that would turn out. But this was definitely grim for me as a viewer.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy.
3: Okay. Uh, what about you, Venom? Oh, All what's right, your take well, on this?
1: I'm going to come in higher than everybody. I like this movie and I think everyone is too fixated on the term horror. When I first saw this movie, I knew nothing about it. Obviously, I saw the I saw the title and thought, "Oh, there might be some scariness to it." But I mean, does anybody here actually read Brothers Grimm? They're they're not like visceral, violent, awful horror stories. They're just these little creepy stories that are just meant to like, you know, maybe make the hair on your neck stand up. Not necessarily be like um how can I put it? Like viscerally scared so much as just you know an atmosphere and i think this movie does that um no is it a horror movie absolutely not i i am very okay with saying it's not a horror movie but i think that's where people are fixated on this as but i mean the movie story- the movie forces oh, you to fixate on it though right because it is a scary story around a campfire structure
2: I, I you're right you're right the the fairy tale notion is what they should have been reinforcing but when you have characters that are like oh you think that's scary this is scary then of course it's going to set you up to think that you're going to be watching horror stories
1: Yes, that's where the movie does itself a disservice, in in that our two wraparound characters are quote-unquote trying to scare each other. Um, They probably should have maybe figured out a different way to kind of approach that, but ultimately i have a pretty good time with this movie i like the first story ultimately all the stories in this movie are incomplete in my opinion all four of them yeah um and and that kind of comes with the territory with anthologies you know we don't always get the time to get a a fully fleshed out beginning middle and end sometimes you just get a concept um you know more than a full story and you know so we kind of have to accept it as an anthology now yes some do it better than others and I will fully admit that the individual stories here are not great. Some of them are, aren't even good. Um, that last one, as much as I want to like it, because it does seem like it's a kind of psychological, potentially supernatural story. Mm. Um, as much as I wanted to like it, they do just leave out so much information. You know, <laughs> like they, they, they don't set up this guy to have any kind of mental health issues. Uh, PTSD from gunfights or anything like that. So the, the ending of that segment definitely doesn't make sense. And you can kind of say that for almost all of them. Um, uh, you know, the, the first story more of a cautionary tale than anything. Um, doesn't really explain a lot, but I do like the swerve how, you know, once when the old, after the old man is attacked by the dying um, the native person You know, we see all the Indians come, uh, excuse me, all the Native Americans come and cover up the mound, you know, obviously thinking that they just covered up, you know, uh, their dead chieftain, Mm -hmm. but instead it's the actual old man. I thought that was a mildly decent swerve, you know, um if you're really paying attention to it, I think most people expected uh, the, the chief to be under that mound and, and the image of the children playing around it afterwards. I love that image. You know, it's, it's the, the children representing new life playing around a graveyard, representing the end of life. Uh, just the um, the kind of dichotomy of it. I really enjoyed. I might be putting way too much artistic value on this movie, but I'm trying to be really positive because I I kind of grew up with this movie. I mean, granted, I was already 20 when it came out. But, you know, from 20 to 25, I watched a lot of HBO and Showtime and whatnot. Um, and like I said, this movie was um, just like um, The Keep, where it came on a lot. When it first came out, I watched it. I enjoyed it. Um, I never really looked at it as a horror movie. I just looked at it as a dark Western, you know, with uh, – some moral lessons to learn here and there uh jenny's vacuum vagina I mean again, more of a concept than an actual storyline um, I mean, obviously, by the end, we kind of get the gist of what 's going on it 's secular, you know she meets a man, uh, decides that he 's a good guy, lets him have some really, really odd though that all through the sex she's basically telling the guy don't do anything to me." Yeah. Yet she's the one taking his pants off and everything else. So it was definitely odd because at first I thought, well, maybe she must feel bad about the curse that she carries mm-hmm. around. But ultimately, I don't think she does. I think I think she's having a great old time with it. So, you know, uh, again, you kind of have to dig a little bit to pull out, um, you know, uh, positives. But again, ultimately, what are you going to do? The third story, obviously, you know, more of a you know racist tale. Um definitely not horror I agree with everyone again but um uh, my question is Brad Dorf uh, Brad Dorf's character um Farley basically says that he's trying to tell a story to scare yeah. <laughs> but it's a story of but... lynching black people so am I to assume that Farley's racist and that was how he was trying to scare uh this black man It just it felt odd that the one story that the white man told was about lynching black people and that he claimed this would scare you. You know, it'll scare the tongue out of your mouth or, you know, whatever the fuck they both said to each other at one point. Um, I don't know. It's like I I walked away from that third story thinking Farley's just a major racist. You know, he probably didn't say anything when he first showed up because, you know, it's a big black man. He's probably terrified of him. Uh, you know, like most American police officers, uh, I'll leave that alone. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, there's not really anything scary about that story. I did try to, I, I did try to, uh, kind of imagine myself as a black man being told this story. And I don't know, I, I think I would have attacked them. I'd have been like, really, that's what you think's going to scare me? Fuck you. Here's a bullet, you know? Um, and then the third story, uh, excuse me, uh, the fourth story, I've already said, very incomplete, very nonsensical, doesn't really make a lot of sense that this guy that shows up in town as this gunslinger who's really smooth with the ladies and seems to have his life all put together and blah, 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 but somehow he, you know, has that weird thing at the end, you know, without spoiling anything, he just has a weird kind of mental breakdown, I guess, at the end of his segment, which, you know, ends up, you know, uh, making him harm himself, but you know, it's an odd one. I will definitely admit that the the shorts here are very odd. But ultimately, this movie, as Doug said, this movie's made by the wraparound. It's made by the relationship between Morrison and Farley. Um, and and it is actually kind of funny that uh, Mike brings up. Uh, um Conan the Barbarian and Thulsa Dune because I'm watching this movie and I'm like how does a black man in 1800s far west uh straighten his hair (laughs) (laughs) is it just me am I being racist but I don't know like he's got long straight black hair and it's like hmm okay I'll leave it alone. I I know it's not anything that we're supposed to think about. It's just the dumb shit that I think about when I'm watching movies. But, yeah, um, it it seemed like there was an underlying tone of race here between these two. And and when I say underlying, I mean way down, way down beneath the surface where most people probably aren't going to see it. But like I said, um, Farley's story to Morrison just kind of struck me as, uh, you know, a little on the racist side. But that's just me. Overall, though, ultimately, I do enjoy this movie. It is disjointed. It is nonsensical. Um, it, the, the segments are very incomplete. There are there are not any full character arcs in here. It's just, you know, a quick concept and then uh, the fruition of that concept, and then we're done. You know, the segments are like. They felt like they were five to ten minutes long. I didn't actually time any of them, but yeah, they feel incredibly short. And this is a 90-minute movie, too, 90-minute movie with four short stories, Mm -hmm. and none of the stories felt very long, so that kind of tells you how much time you're spending in the wraparound, which I'm not complaining about, because as most of us have already said, it's probably the best part of the film, but overall... I enjoy this film. Um, It's not anything that I return to that often, but when I do think of it, it, it's something that, you know, if I'm not doing anything better, I don't have anything to watch for a podcast. I could pop it in now that I know it's on YouTube as well. I'll, you know, uh, ultimately, the transfer is not very good. Um, I mean, looking for Mr. Goodbar probably was the best looking film that we watched on this episode, um, and you know, rightfully so. Obviously, since it was a big release and you know, uh, Oscar bait at the time. So, um, but yeah, Grim, Grim Prairie Tales uh, is it, it's close to my heart. It's it, let's just say it's a less than stellar movie that's close to my heart. I'll leave it at that.
3: Right on. I'm glad I brought it up to the table. Okie dokie. I guess that wraps it up.
0: Yeah. So I guess from the four movies on this episode, we learned there's probably all sorts of reasons why movies don't have a physical or at least a wide physical (laughs) release. Uh, And you usually find those things out through the course of watching a movie or many movies. I mean, looking um, for
1: Mr. Goodbar makes sense, you know, because of the licensing, the music licensing. That that totally makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, Grim Prairie Tales, It's it probably just doesn't have the audience that it needs. Plus, that article that I read uh, that Doug sent us, doesn't, uh, doesn't it say, like, the producer and the director aren't yeah. even, like, friendly anymore? So I, I, Yeah, they're I, not I, friendly
3: uh, anymore, and something about uh, the contract said 20 years, and he was expecting all kinds of DVDs to show up, but then... The only thing that he saw show up was uh, bootlegs.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I mean, that, that, that's too bad. But um, you know, and Trident Force, yeah, we we don't have to talk about that. It, it would be a waste yeah, of materials no. to put that on. <laughs> um, but yeah, looking for Mr. Goodbar. That's you know, aside from the licensing one, that that's the shocker. I mean, that's that's an actual award-winning movie, Oscar-nominated movie that doesn't have a physical release. That's crazy. I mean, the only thing that would make sense is the licensing. So, yeah. They all got their valid reasons, I suppose. Hmm.
0: All right. Well, that's going to wrap up our final movie in the, for the episode, as well as the episode itself. But first, uh, Doug, what did we learn from this episode?
2: I think what we learned, simply because of the variety of movies, that regardless of quality, every movie deserves to be uh, distributed and seen and evaluated on its own merits, except Trident Force.
1: <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> it's funny, too, because uh, on Fresh oh, Cuts, right. on, on me and Mike's show Fresh Cuts, I'm whenever we have to review a bad movie, and we, do, we had to do one literally just this past episode, whenever we review a, ba- a bad movie, I always kind of... Um, I always say that I don't enjoy shitting on movies because I genuinely don't. I don't enjoy shitting on people's art, no matter how bad, stupid, silly, ridiculous a movie is. Somebody, you know, they shed their blood, sweat and tears for that movie. It's a passion project for somebody. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I I don't enjoy shitting on these movies. But you know what? I enjoyed shitting on Triton Force. (laughs)
4: <laughs> uh, Sorry. All right. that movie
1: just has no forgiveness there, there, there's just nothing that could uh i don't know uh qualify that movie as uh you know must see cinema you, you know mike you can actually watch movies and
2: then suggest one to us as opposed yeah. to just picking one <laughs> there's time it's not like we're rushing you to choose it in the first i know <laughs> you knew the theme a month ago.
0: Uh, yeah, some pre-screening is in order.
1: Yeah. Uh, and the funny all thing right, is, well, too, you could have just watched 10 minutes of Trident Force and already knew your answer. You uh, wouldn't have even had to waste a whole 90 minutes. You wouldn't even have had to see the t- opening credits. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. 18-minute cold open. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Ah. <laughs>
0: All right, well, let's find out where our listeners can find some enjoyment elsewhere besides seeing warriors. So I will start with Doug. Uh, where else can we listen to you, and what do you have out uh, right now?
2: Uh, well, you can find me uh, every Monday at Uh The latest episodes also show up at cinepunks.com. Uh, we have a variety of podcasts devoted to different subject matter, including a uh, recently launched one devoted to Eurocrime. We have a podcast devoted to the uh, chronological filmography of Alejandro Jodorowsky, but we're probably best known for Eric Roberts as the fucking man. We have a Jackie Chan podcast, a podcast devoted to Carol Kane called Praising Kane. You can find that all at cinemasmorgasbord.com or if you just check on Twitter at cinemasmorg, that's S-M-O-R-G. No Budget Nightmares is still out there, our podcast devoted to micro-budget and no-budget cinema. That's at nobudgetpodcast.com, hopefully returning very soon, but if you just want to see what I'm up to, it's at Doug underscore Tilly on Twitter, that's T-I-L-L-E-Y.
0: Cool. All right. Uh, Iris, how about you?
3: Well, um, Mike and I, Mike, Mark and I just uh, wrapped up uh, Three in the Attic uh, last week, and that was a fun discussion. Uh, And then for next Saturday, we will be recording with Gary and we will be reviewing Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. That's going to be fun. So uh, if you want to listen to my lovely voice even some more, I am on ExploitationFilm.com, and that is the website for badasses, boobs, and body counts.
0: Sweet. And uh, Venom, since you cover pretty much everything that I do as well, I saved you for last, so what, else, uh, what have we got
1: Well, aside from Theme Warriors, you can also hear Mike and myself on No More Room in Hell and the sister podcast to that, No More Room in Hell, presents Fresh Cuts. On our latest episodes, uh, we have... Uh, Let's see, we have a couple of movies from 1986 on the latest episode of No More Room in Hell, Chopping Law, and Witchboard, which, uh, by the way, very odd that we reviewed Witchboard on the week that Tawny Catane unfortunately passed away. Rest in peace, Tawny. Um, And believe it or not, I actually regret one or two of the things I said about Tawny during that review. So cut me some slack, people. It was before she died. Anyway... Um, and then on the latest episode of Fresh Cuts, we looked at uh, a, a very recent um, kind of feminist uh, horror called At Night Comes Wolves, basically a film that was um, pieced together by three short segments um, that the basically all three segments were done by the same director. He decided that the story was cohesive enough that he could just stitch those shorts together and make one feature length movie. According to to him. Yeah. yeah. You'll have to listen to the episode to find out if we agree with him stitching those three shorts together. Um, All of those are available on the dark discussions podcast network. As far as the other stuff I do, In the Mike of Madness and Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space are both on hiatuses while we, um, while we decide, you know, scheduling issues and things like that. And then my last show is, of course, It's Not Horror Okay, our movie commentary podcast that I do with members of NFW and the Friday Nightmares podcast. On our latest episode, we looked at the early 80s classic porkies um classic to some trash to others um we had a good time doing a commentary for it either way that recently dropped so check that out on dark discussions and i think that's it from me mike do you
2: know that porkies was the highest grossing canadian film for something like 15 years it was, yep, it, it was it. yeah
1: <laughs> i couldn't believe it <laughs>
0: Interesting. Um, Okay, yeah, that pretty much covers me too. I mean, the only other thing I kind of have, I would say, semi-actively going is Burning for Springwood. We cover Freddy's Nightmares, uh, but that's that's a really sporadic show. We kind of get together when we can because everyone has other stuff going on. And, I mean, is anyone really in a hurry to watch more Freddy's Nightmares? I don't know. Maybe maybe some of the listeners are interested in hearing about it. But so if they are, that's uh, where to find it, which I believe it's on Legion or Legion Podcast Network. So with that, that's all I have for this episode. I guess we can go ahead and get out of here now. Uh, we should be back in June with another episode. So until, until then, stay good night to the listeners, everybody. Good, good night. night, everybody.
1: I'm gonna go watch Death Stalker
4: 4. Ooh.